Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader and founder of Vegan Business Media a content, events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Before we go into the main part of the show, I want to let you know about a new online PR course for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs that I'm running. It's called Vegans in the Limelight and it starts in June. That's 2017 if you're listening in the future. And you'll learn how to get free publicity by getting yourself featured in the media on a regular basis. Now, the course is particularly for vegan professionals who can't afford to hire a PR firm or a publicist at the moment. And I'm running it because I see so many vegan business owners, authors and entrepreneurs missing out on golden opportunities to get into the media, either because they're not confident in approaching journalists because they don't have the skills or they're pitching the media the wrong way. So I'm going to share with you the strategies and techniques for how to do your own PR. The course is tailored specifically for vegan business owners, so there'll be downloadable templates, case studies and bite-sized video training. You'll be able to post questions on the learning platform, which I'll personally respond to, and there'll also be three live group calls you can jump on to ask me anything about getting into the media, and I'll give you answers specifically for your business. So you're not going to be left to struggle along on your own with the course. So if you're keen to get your vegan brand in the limelight, head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where there's a link to the course with all the details. And I'll also put the link on the show notes page. And if you type in the coupon code podcast, as you enroll, you'll receive a special early bird rate before the 20th of April. In this episode, I interview insurance expert Stephen Griswold in Los Angeles. Stephen is president of Griswold & Griswold Insurance Agency, a second-generation family-run firm that's been around since 1948. With over 16 years of experience, Stephen provides innovative solutions and fresh perspectives on risk management to small and mid-sized businesses in a variety of fields, including startup, technology, healthcare and non-profit. The company is the only insurance agency in Southern California and one of only a handful in the world that is certified as a B Corporation. In 2016, Stephen launched Vegan and Animal Professionals Insurance Agency, or VAPI for short, an idea that had been gestating since he first became an ethical vegan in 2012. VAPI provides a diverse range of insurance broking services to vegan-run businesses in the US and international companies that sell products or services in the US, as well as for professionals working in the animal advocacy and non-profit sectors. In this interview, Stephen discusses the key types of insurance most vegan business owners require and when to get them in place, The newest type of liability insurance coverage is essential for the majority of business owners today. Why you need insurance, even if you don't make mistakes. The advantages of working with an independent insurance broker and the hidden fees to watch out for that not all of them declare. How to choose the right insurance broker. An important type of insurance a startup with investors needs and much more. Here's the interview with Stephen Griswold of Vegan and Animal Professionals Insurance Agency. Hello, Stephen. Lovely to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Katrina. Look forward to it. So I always start off, um, as regular listeners to the podcast know, about finding out what people's reasons are for doing what they do, for running the business that they do. Now, I know you've got um, uh, an extensive background in insurance, and you've also got a particular arm to your insurance uh, company that's specifically for, for vegans and people who work in animal advocacy. So tell us a little bit about that and tell us why you do what you do. 
Of course. So, uh, yeah, I, I've been in the insurance industry for, um, wow, 15, 16 years now. Um, I actually run a family, um, uh, second generation family firm. Um, it, my dad started our original agency in 1948. And uh, I've been vegan for about five years. And it occurred to me that uh, there's uh, no, our industry is very much not really vegan friendly or vegan aware. And uh, I, I found that there was a, a need for somebody who's vegan to really take the helm and, and, and push things along um, for, for vegan businesses. So I started a, a uh, co-brand called Vegan and Animal Professionals Insurance Agency. So we're the only uh, vegan-run, vegan-focused commercial insurance brokerage in the U.S. Wow, that's fantastic. How long has that been running for, Stephen? So I started it uh, mid last year, and, and I uh, really didn't officially start doing business under that name until about uh, October or November. And um, but we've just we're still in kind of a soft launch phase. I'm I'm just testing the waters and getting referrals. Uh, but we'll be doing um, a lot more marketing as the year goes on. Fantastic. Well, that's great. I love the fact that you've, you're providing such a valuable service to this niche. So, look, but let's be honest, without any offense to you or insurance brokers, insurance isn't exactly a sexy topic. And, um, you know, I know a lot of business right. owners, they can see it as, you know, a bit of an expensive annoyance, you know, particularly if they've got to have more than one insurance and, and, and what have you. So there's that kind of perception about it. So um, tell us, why is insurance for vegan business owners in particular? Why is it important? Sure. So, yeah, and insurance is one of those things that is a necessary evil for a lot of business <laughs> owners. And of course, yeah, it could be, you know, for some for some types of businesses, it could be one of your top five, one or two of your top five line item expenses on an annual basis. So it's one of the things that people have to deal with. They don't like dealing with it. They don't like dealing with insurance companies. But it's a matter of really uh, protecting your business. The whole purpose of insurance is really to protect you from the unknown. So uh, anything from a kitchen fire in a restaurant to a cyber, cyber attack on your, your business database to uh, just plain old theft. Uh, so there's, there's many, many different ways that you can lose money in your business uh, through no fault of your own. And um, I always hearken back to a saying that somebody, somebody told me a long time ago, that's really a hallmark of insurance, especially when it comes to liability, is that you don't actually ever have to do something wrong. Someone just has to say you did. And that's a really big key Ooh. for a lot of liability insurances where someone's like, well, I never make mistakes or I don't have a reason that I'll have ever claim on this policy. You don't need one. You just need somebody to that's rubbed the wrong way that accuses you of doing something wrong. And that's where insurance comes in. That's a really good point, actually. And I hadn't thought of that, actually. You're, you're absolutely right, because you're right. I think a lot of business owners will just say, oh, yes, but I'm really careful and I've got all these safeguards in place. But you're right. It can just be someone saying you've done something, and particularly in the US, which is kind of known for its, exactly. <laughs> its suing <laughs> culture. Um, that's a really, really good point. Um, so uh, talk us through some of the different types of insurance insurances that a, a vegan business owner may, may need and why. And obviously, you know, the definition of vegan business owner is very, very broad. It could be service-based providers, solopreneurs, through to, you know, larger, say, eateries or fashion businesses. So can you just sort of talk us through some of the different types of insurances that, yeah, business owners might need to know and might need to have and why? Of course. And yeah, as you said, it's going to vary quite widely depending on the type of business. But uh, so if you have any sort of brick and mortar business or any sort of exposure where you are uh, have a physical location, physical presence, the general liability is the most common and most talked about insurance. And really what this does, it protects against physical damage or uh, personal injury, uh, bodily injury that is caused uh, through your negligence or through your actions. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're getting to a, a point where a lot more businesses are virtual or remote or you don't really have that personal exposure anymore. So general liability is, is not always the, the cornerstone of an insurance portfolio. Uh, but anybody who's doing any sort of service, it could be from uh, consulting or um, and anything like that, uh, where somebody's paying you to do a, a service then you know, professional liability becomes very important. So you know, we see this most in uh, for doctors and accountants and attorneys. That's typical. But um, we, you know, anything from uh, even uh, if you are a um, have an app or uh, are or doing something online, 
then you know failure or or some error in ex- executing that service you're performing with somebody if that causes a loss that's that's professional liability. Um, you know uh, the the big the big topic in, in insurance right now is cybersecurity liability and. Almost every single business on the planet now has some sort of online exposure, which is not covered anywhere else except in cybersecurity uh, liability. So that's really kind of the the big uh, the the big uh, coverage to look out for. Oh, tell us a bit more about that. That's interesting. So yeah, cybersecurity. So uh, going back, general liability uh, has, as I said, has been a cornerstone of most liability packages for quite some time. But the core general in the U.S., the core general liability was called form, which is that the general structure of a general liability policy tends to exclude anything that's uh, online or digital or, or computer based. So data or uh, loss of business um, receipts via a, a data breach or anything to do with computers is typically not covered in a general liability policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a cybersecurity policy covers you from everything from somebody suing you for copyright infringement on your website, uh, somebody, uh, uh, one of your um, employees saying something bad on social media and getting sued for libel or slander, or uh, this happened actually just last week, somebody breaking into your server, encrypting it and demanding a ransom, which which is happening oh, with, with yes. startling frequency now. Yeah. Um, or even something simple as uh, you have some you you storing private data for clients anything from uh, dispersal security numbers credit card information and that getting out to the wrong hands uh, intentionally or unintentionally that becomes your you know, your liability so um, like I said almost every business takes credit cards and uh, it's assumed that oh I use a credit card service to process this the 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 that's a actually a big uh, a myth is that once you have somebody else taking care of it it's their problem. Once somebody gives you their data, you are actually in care, custody, and control of that data. And if something happens to it, even if you've farmed out to a third party, it can still be your problem. Really? Wow. Yes. Wow. So having that cybersecurity insurance policy covers you against all of that? Yes. Wow. Okay, that's good to know. I hadn't thought of that actually, and I because I'm, I'm based in Australia, and obviously our listeners are from across the globe. I know a lot of people in in the US, um, and I just assumed because I've got professional indemnity for my business, and I just assumed that that kind of thing would be covered in my professional liability insurance. So I'm sure. probably going to have a little check of mine now. That um, <laughs> you've said uh, well, that. often it is um, for for a lot of uh, companies that are online based or or based in technology. There's a, a kind of an offshoot of um, a professional ability called a technology package, which covers you for your errors and emissions as a um, technology services provider or a provider of some service in, in the technology industry, and also includes a suite of cybersecurity protections automatically. So that a lot of people who have uh, maybe you know apps or just uh, some sort of uh, you know basic online business can usually can usually find some something in their core policy to cover that as well. Okay, well I think that's a good good reason for everyone listening if you're in, a, in an existing business to just go and double check that because that's certainly what I'll be doing. So that's great. Oh, now thank you for for sharing that um Stephen. So again, I know this comes down to like you said, you know, the different types of businesses, but what would you say in your opinion are the essentials in terms of insurance versus nice to haves? Like for example, I mean, I don't know, you might not consider this a nice to have, but I know in mine my partner's business, we got a tax audit insurance included so if for any reason the tax office decided to audit our business we we're covered for a certain amount for our accountants fee uh, our accountant to look into that um, now some people might think oh well that's not an essential it's a nice to have what what are your right. uh, thoughts on what you think are you know the real basics that you've got to have in place versus some nice extras sure so the ones that kind of already mentioned are definitely the the the, the core coverage is so you know if you if you are a physical uh you if you have a physical presence you have to have general liability in fact most landlords in the U.S. demand it to have an office space um, cyber liability I really feel something every business should at least consider um, professional liability if you're any sort of service provider um, and uh, if you are um, you know have a if you own a building or or have equipment definitely you want to make sure that property is covered. Um, you know, t- and typically kind of like surrounding this is stuff like, you know, business interruption coverage. And um, if you have uh, a business where you have shareholders, um, directors and officers is almost, uh, I would say, a mandatory requirement if you have any sort of um, 
multiple ownership in your business. Um, and then nice to have, uh, especially here in California, where we're even more so happy than the rest of the nation, <laughs> we have what's called employment practices liability insurance. This is something that's very, very underrated coverage. But what it does, it protects the business owner against actions from the employees. And um, somebody says, uh, and some says, well, I treat my employees very well, but that's, that's all well and good. But that you know, lulls the business owner into false sense of security, thinking that just treating the employees well means they won't turn on you if they, ha- you know, if they feel that they, they are entitled to something. So it could be anything from, uh, uh, you know, a discrimination claim or harassment from another employee or manager or wrongful termination or uh, some, uh, some uh, disagreement about their wage and hour. Um, but uh, we see a lot of those claims happen where even a long-time employee's find that, uh, you know, that they're in a lawsuit with their employer. Um, kind of on a similar note, uh, you know, if you're in almost every state in the, in the U.S., you need workers' compensation coverage. So I would actually go back and include that as one of the core coverages and definitely mandatory for almost every, um, uh, every business. Um, and uh, dovetailing into that, we, you know, that's, that's where a lot of uh, business owners feel, oh, well, I'll just make everybody an independent contractor. And that can be a whole nother pitfall um, of, uh, employee classification, which again would lead to employment practices liability. Um, but uh, there's, you know, dozens of other niche coverages that could apply to people. But I would, I would say that uh, the ones I mentioned are, are definitely the the uh, most important. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. And I know you touched on workers' compensation because certainly here in Australia, workers' compensation is, for example, if an employee has an accident traveling to or from their place of work, then they could be covered. But does that mean something else in the U.S.? So, yeah, workers' compensation in the U.S. means if you if an employee is injured uh, in the course of their job um, due to uh, um, um, the uh, employer's negligence, that's workers' compensation. Uh, so it, it directly compensates the employee for, for uh, you know, f- damages sustained and lost work. Um, and in California, that's really this. The, it's a. It's a. Uh, that coverage is pretty much all bundled together with what's called employer's liability coverage. In some other states, they break them into two parts, where you have actually workers' compensation covering the employee's actual. Uh, you know the the uh, compensation for the employee's actual damages and then employer liability is additional liability incurred by the employer for uh you know for stat- statutory damages um but you know generally we refer to this all of this as workers compensation but oh, okay. in most states it's it's actually um uh, in California if you don't have workers compensation you are actually committing a crime and you could actually be fined and put in jail for not having workers' compensation. Right, right. So the, the, the penalties vary between, between states, but it's mandatory in, I believe, almost every state. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think it's important as well, I guess, for listeners to to hear this. We're talking about, you know, insurance and it, obviously it is going to be very specific to where you are, the country, the city, the state that you're in um, to really check those things out. But it, this is good to get this kind of, you know, give people some ideas about, you know, what they should and shouldn't be uh, getting themselves covered for. So that's fantastic. So can you give us a couple of examples, Stephen? I know you posted something on Facebook, which I caught, and I think it was a health related thing. And it was quite a shocking anecdote. Um, uh, of someone who I think had been hit with a massive bill of like, I think, was it a million dollars or something? It was something like a health bill that oh, was man. really, really massive. Um, and I don't know if that how that kind of plays out necessarily with vegan business insurance, but I wondered if you had any examples right. of, I guess, worst case scenarios. So where you sure, know, vegan mean, business owners in different sectors where they could come unstuck if they didn't have insurance in place. Sure. I mean, actually, this month has been really, really incredible for case studies for claims for for my agency because the one I, I that you're mentioning, um, a, a the son of one of my clients was uh, laid off from his job in October. Uh, you know, young young man, early 30s, very very healthy, and felt, oh, I, you know, I'll pick up another job that will give me health insurance somewhere in time in the next few months. And uh, as you as you know, we in the U.S. have uh, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, mm. and 
the uh, you know it it does it did a very lot of good things for our industry and for for people's access to care, but it did create some limitations where that if you didn't enroll in a certain special special window, uh, that you were basically locked out of the market for for up to a year. Um, so it happens that he had um, uh, you know neglected to enroll through the window, so he was without coverage, and uh, due to some uh, unknown, un, uh, prior unknown health uh, uh, health condition, had a stroke at age thirty, and this um, you know he was in a hospital for five days before any any. Well, actually, he was he was in his house um, alone for five days before anybody found him. Then he was in a hospital for a week before anybody was notified. Oh, wow. um, and uh, so you know he's gonna he has you know of course some brain damage and is gonna need intensive amounts of therapy and. They're estimating the medical bills could be well, well into the six figures, um, especially if they want to get him the best type of therapy. It could be six figures a month of therapy, mm-hmm. which would have been covered by insurance. But of course, he didn't have any. And, uh, you know, the the our, just the way our system is, is that if you don't have insurance, you have very, very bare bones access to to rudimentary coverage, which isn't good for recovery. So his parents are going to have to come up with and tremendous amounts of money to to um to pay for some of these services um so is that more down to kind of an individual making sure that they have their own personal health insurance right so yeah there's some responsible individual make sure they have health insurance um i always encourage business owners to really look at the economics of providing group benefits because you know we it's it's in the past has gotten a bad rap for being too expensive but with the changes in affordable care act we're seeing an uh, uh, an approach parity between uh, individual and group plans as far as cost and you know when you fa- when you factor in the various tax benefits and um, structures of group coverage it's actually in many times uh, a better decision for group for a company owner to offer group benefits to their employees. How many um, employees? Which, you know, what would does... be well, sorry to interrupt. What would be the minimum? Because I'm thinking, like, in terms of for small, I can understand how that would be good for like company larger companies. What about for small business owners who have maybe got three or four staff? Like, is that applicable oh, yeah, in that I mean, case? Or? Yeah, because you know the the um, we most in most areas you can get away with uh, having a group plan with just one one employee. You know, the owner and one employee. You can have a group. Um, and there's always exceptions and there's, there's ways around all these rules. But as a general rule, if you have one employee, you, you have a group and you don't have to pay for the employee's entire premium. You can, you know, subsidize a small part of it, which in many, for many, in many cases is cheaper for both the employer and the employee than trying to figure out a way to, you know, uh, go around the other, um, the other rules of, 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 you know, reimbursing the employee for health premiums, which, which you can't really do anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it tends to improve employee morale, improves, improves recruitment, and it just makes everything a lot smoother for everybody. Right, right. That's good to know because I think there is that sort of idea or that perception that, you know, offering those kind of benefits to employees is can be really expensive and it's only really suitable if you're a big company and it's more of a, another pressure on a small business owner. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, and obviously, right, you know, and- again, this may be quite specific to the US or to, uh, and what have you, but that's, that's really, um, yeah, useful to know and worth, worth vegan business owners looking into and exploring that. And like you mentioned, maybe there's even tax breaks available. So. Oh, that's exactly. Great. So, look, insu- we talked about, you know, insurance companies not or insurance not being necessarily a sexy topic, but also, you know, insurance companies. And I think this is probably true globally. They've got a bit of a reputation for being, you know, very happy to take people's money in the form of premiums. But they do whatever they can to get out of paying out claims or paying them very minimum possible, or, you know, putting people through a hard time to get their money, sometimes drawing it out over years. Um, now, this I know that's probably a bit of a generalization, but what are your thoughts on this? Um, I mean, th- th- that uh, th- that image of the, the insurance company withholding payments or not paying out, I mean, it's it's well-earned. I mean, there's many, many cases of where insurance companies will have to be taken to court to really recover what you need from them. But in general, especially when you're, you know, in the context of, of, of business insurance, companies tend to pay out uh, fairly quickly and, fa- and fairly based on damages. And the a lot of these complaints and argu- arguments we see come from the business owner or the owner of the policy not fully understanding what the policy does and doesn't cover. 
So this is a shared responsibility of both the, the insurance agent, making sure that they are aware of all the risks inherent with that their client's business and the business owner, uh, taking the time to understand what it is that they're insured for. So um, when everybody's on the same page, there's good communication. We tend to find that if there's a uh, there, there's a claim that this is settled, uh, you know, much more easily than if there if there was, uh, you know, some some sort of disagreement or um, you know, just nebul- you know nebulousness with with the coverage. So, uh, but but um, you know, in general, insurance carriers are ready to pay out claims. Okay, so it's a case of really the client and if you're using a broker, uh, make the client making sure they're educated themselves and brokers making sure that they educate their clients. Right. And of course, you know, the the the, the tough ones are typically typically to do with anything with health, because, you know, health insurance, they'll say like, well, I need this treatment and it's not covered by the insurance carrier. And there's no way, almost no way you can know this ahead of time, because trying to get an exact list of, of the medications and procedures and conditions covered by an insurance planner is nearly impossible. And so that's a lot of times where people kind of uh, find, find that they're, they're at odds with their insurance carrier. But um, So in terms of business yeah, the, insurance, not so much. Uh, but yeah, yeah, in terms of business insurance, it's, it's a lot, generally a lot more cut and dry. Okay. All right, cool. So now if someone's starting up a business, so they're they're kind of in their, you know, pre-stage, you know, pre-launch stage, they're thinking about starting a business, at what stage do they need to get those various types of insurance to be in place? You know, should they try and get some things in, in advance before they've launched or are there some things they have to wait until the business is already up and running? So um, it's it's it really highly depends on you know what what their exposure is and uh, what what they're looking to cover so um i work with a lot of startups and one of the first coverages we should get for startups is a directors and officers coverage because they've brought on capital partners or vc or investors and anytime you bring on outside money into a company you want to make sure that everybody's protected and everybody's on the same page in regards to um you know the the structure of the company because that 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 could be a, a big uh, area of concern with with fledgling companies. But assuming you're say you know a startup running out of your garage or um, just trying to trying to build something from scratch, if you don't have any uh, real what's you know what we call exposure, you uh, you don't really need insurance until you start having that. So if you don't if you have a product, you don't need to get liability for that product until you start manufacturing and distributing that product. Um, but uh, you know, in some cases, we do need to get coverage pre-launch if if required by contract. So if you are renting an office space, that landlord will probably want general liability coverage. Uh, if you are uh, creating a distributorship uh, distributorship deal with a a, a vendor, then um, you may need some coverage for that. Or if you're, um, you know, easy easy way if you're selling on Amazon. Amazon requires you to have this big laundry list of insurances to to be able to sell on their platform. Um, but really, we, a lot of times we can get away with not needing coverage until you actually have an exposure. Um, but, you know, there, there's a fine line between uh, ha- needing coverage and, uh, you know, having an exposure and getting to a point where you're trying to, um, you know, get insurance when something's already on fire. So, yeah. it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's you know, I always recommend that people at least discuss what they're doing with their insurance broker as early as possible and maintain communication so that when the time comes, everything's ready to go. Got it. I just want to go back to that, what you said about shareholder and investor insurance, because that's an interesting one. So at what point would you get, so if you are like, you know, seeking that outside investment, at what point do you get that insurance in place? Like, because do you make, do you wait until the contract is inked and then get it? Like, or would you kind of, if you know someone is keen and they're about to sign, would you get it just before they sign? Um, it, I mean, it's, it's best to get it as early as possible, but the the thing is, it's you know, it's a double-edged sword because you know, the the earlier you get it, the more the more protection you have. But again, if you are seeking investments, probably because you need money, and the directors and officers coverage is is uh, the cost is very much based on how how well the company is doing financially. So if you have great financials, 
you pay you pay less than a company that's constantly running in the red. Um, so uh, and you can't you know if you need an investor to get you into black, obviously it's it's kind of a uh, um, uh, you know you need, you need to figure out which, which to do first. But I, I don't really think it's necessary until after you have investment, then you can get work, uh, directors and officers coverage because the uh, the carriers are not super concerned about existing investors unless you are you bring somebody on and immediately have problems with them. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's typically fine to wait until after there's some sort of um, uh, outside investment before getting uh, directors and officers coverage. And what does that specifically cover you for? Does that cover you for, say, an investor wanting to take the company in a different direction or wanting to maybe take it in a non-vegan direction, for example? What, what kind of things does oh, it cover? Oh, yeah, like, you know, in the yeah, light of uh, kind of, a, you know, the, the recent headline. Yeah, um, yeah that, that, would, that could totally be directors and officers claim um, because if, if you have an investor and um, there's uh, some massive disagreement with how the um, – not necessarily the the direction of the company, but is like you know who's authorized to make these sort of decisions and who's um, uh, you know who, you know who's able to 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 really do certain things in the company. That that's kind of where we see um, some conflicts with directors and officers, or um, really any time uh, you know one owner would would typically sue another owner. That's kind of where directors and officers come in, or oh, okay. a shareholder. Maybe a sh- you know you have um, shareholders that are not uh, acting directors, but the shareholders feel that their money is not being uh, uh, shepherded properly in, in the, uh, as far as the company is going, that would be a director's and officer's claim. So if you um, are, are building a company with saying, we're, you know, we're going to be, uh, have this product that's sustainable and fair trade and everything, and you get investors, and all of a sudden you're using conventional items and um, undercutting everything, that's that's that that's actionable under the directors and officers because you are you know uh, misleading your misleading your shareholders. So, but you know, directors and officers is this huge, huge, wide field of possible exposures. But those are a couple that that come off the top of my head. Yeah. So basically, as, as you, as say the owner of the company, you could have it, and then also your investors may also take out their own policies. So typically, the directors and officers policy covers all the all the uh, shareholders and directors and officers and managers oh. of the company. So even it, if it's, they're it's suing a, each other, yeah, even if they're suing each other. So that's oh. uh, it, it's interesting, um, hmm. you know. And it, it gets more complicated if you have you know subsidiaries or or partnerships and stuff like that. But it's uh, you know the, the purpose of directors and officers is to make sure that the the structure of the company remains at least somewhat intact from a financial standpoint. Okay. All right. Good. No, thanks for explaining that. So let's talk a bit about your your own business. As we mentioned, you've been running uh, or working in your family business for for a very long time. And now you've got this fairly new uh, vegan arm, which is absolutely fantastic. So let's talk first about the use of the word vegan um, in a company's name or marketing materials. Obviously, you've you've gone front and center with vegan with your your new co-brand. So tell us a bit about uh, a bit about that and why you decided to use the word vegan. So I, I I did that and um, I, I know that you know the, the word vegan can be very polarizing. That that's um, uh, I know that that's why a lot of companies prefer to use plant based or some other alternative wording. But uh, you know, given that we do already have an existing family agency that focuses on uh, every other type of business, I felt that uh, creating vegan and animal professionals insurance really highlighted front and center what we're about and what we do and who we're for. Um, and really, because uh, as, as vegans, we tend to w- prefer to work with others that are, are vegan and share a worldview. And as um, many people know, that if you are uh, working with a company and that company's core beliefs don't match with yours, and maybe that company goes on a, uh, you know, a hunting retreat, um, then it's, it's undermining directly what you're trying to accomplish in, in the world. So I think by... Align, you know, aligning our values with those of our customers and clients, we we kind of um, are able to really focus on doing the best we can for everybody. Fantastic. So how to just interestingly on that, then how does that kind of sit then? Because you mentioned with your main company that works with all different types of other businesses. Do you have like uh, any type of businesses that you don't work with that might conflict with your vegan beliefs? Um, so, just, you know, because we, we have, um, 
you know, th- th- this company, like I said, this company's been around for for 69 years. I don't really uh, refuse to work with anyone that, um, uh, you know, for for any particular reason. But um, you know, if, if, but I would turn down something that would be very strictly against my ethics. So if I if if there is a company that was a furrier or something, of course I would say I would I would completely decline to work with that. Um, but you know, there it is double it double sword. It's like well, then I could take their money and then donate it to a um an animal rights or you know that their commission I get and donate it to an animal rights organization. <laughs> so you know it's 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 a, it's a delicate balance. I need you know I need to figure out well do, do, you know what what would be I think they haven't run into that yet, but I, I would have to make the decision whether to um you know to suffer working through them to achieve a greater good down the road or if I should just, uh, you know, not not get myself involved in that. Yeah, cool. So tell us a bit about the benefits of going with, with, I don't know if it's the same in America, but I know in the UK where I'm originally from in Australia, you can get insurance by directly going to an insurance company or you can go through a broker. Um, So tell us a bit about what are the benefits of going with, and particularly for vegan business owners, going with a specialist broker such as yourself instead of trying to, you know, go directly with insurance companies? Sure. So in most cases, um, Lot, lot of uh, on the business side, a lot of insurance carriers won't deal with the public at large. Um, there's a couple that will sell you a policy online and sell you a very basic policy. But uh, the most cases, if you approach, say, uh, Travelers or Hartford, they'll just actually point you to a, a, a local agent because they don't they don't want to take on that direct that that director relationship. Um, and uh, you know, it's, I think it's important for a lot of businesses to um, to Try to seek out what you know what we call an independent broker. So an independent broker is not tied to one one particular company, which uh, uh, you know allows them to uh, get proposals from multiple companies. And especially if your risk is not really fit in the box uh, of, of like say you know I, I have a, um, a barbershop or a uh, a restaurant or um, you know retail store. Uh, so if it's, if it's something outside the box, then an independent broker will have much more, much, uh, much greater options for getting some sort of coverage. Right. Got it. And I was curious about that. It was going to be one of my other questions, that thing about commission, because I know that sometimes there can be a perception that some brokers only arrange insurance with certain insurers because they're going to get paid a commission rather than directing the client to the best insurance options for them. So so what you're saying is that you want to seek out an independent broker such as yourself that, you know, doesn't necessarily have any particular ties to any one company and that will make the best decision for you as a business owner. Right. So, you know, on, on an independent side, most carriers tend to pay pretty similar commissions. So, you know, I'll be, I'll be transparent. It's about 10% of the premium is typically the, the average commission for uh, commercial policy. It could be as low as 5%, could be as high as 15 or 18%. It really depends on the type of coverage in the company and many other factors. But yeah, a good independent broker will, will say, well, I mean, this, this policy uh, is $1,000 more and pays me 18% versus this policy, which is less than pays me five, but, you know, they're going to, you know, most, most brokers tend to work in the client's best interests. Um, and, um, uh, you know, some people say, well, what if I, you know, went to the company directly? It's uh, companies that do work directly tend to have to file their rates with the state, with the state they're working in. And these rates are the same, whether or not you work with a broker. Uh, so, you know, by you know, trying to cut out the middleman, you lose the support of the middleman, and uh, you know your pricing doesn't really change. Um, the only thing I would caution to look out for is that some independent brokers do add what's called broker fees to their policies, and uh, not all of them are very transparent about these broker fees. And that's something just to look out for. And if, if somebody's reviewing the policy and sees, um, you know, they have a two thousand dollar premium and a three hundred dollar broker fee, you know, there's there's some you know you want to make sure that the, the, the broker's providing enough service to warrant that fee. Ah, oh, good. Well, thank you for pointing that out. That, that's, that's good to know. So what other things um, do people need to look out for when they're choosing an insurance broker? Um, well, as you mentioned, you, you want one that understands the industry you're working in. So if somebody um, you know, approached me and says, uh, you know, I, I have a, um, you know, a large uh, commercial uh, long, uh, long-haul trucking company, 
I would probably not necessarily be the best person for that job. Um, but, you know, because we tend to focus on things like, uh, you know, startups and professional, uh, professional companies and, uh, you know, there's a few industries we focus on, but, uh, you know, brokers who tend to, spe- you know, to, who work specifically with certain industries tend to be more aware of the inherent risks and, um, uh, the, the niche details of, of that industry's exposures. Got it. So when you say you work with different industries and sectors and you have a focus on the professional, so do you cover things like food and restaurants and fashion and beauty um, and things like that? Yes, because, you know, a lot of these things have uh, covered just a little bit out of the ordinary. So, you know, our, our main platforms we cover are uh, healthcare, startups, nonprofits, um, uh, you know, restaurants, um, uh, product manufacturers, because a lot of these will have, uh, especially product manufacturers, a big thing is product liability. So if something goes wrong with your product yes. and somebody sues you, yeah. you need coverage for that. And that's its own industry. Um, we're, we're getting into also, um, you know, patent protection insurance. That's, that's um, an emerging thing where you have a unique patent and you want to protect it or defend it. That's, uh, there's a very niche coverage for that. But we do a lot of, um, you know, vast majority of what I do is working with startups to make sure that their professional liability, their directors and officers, their, um, and, um, you know, their, their other core coverages are taken care of to allow them to grow unhindered. Got it. Got it. So what term kinds of insurances can you help to arrange for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs? So we, I mean, there's really no limit to what we're able to do. So pretty much any, any type of vegan business we're, we're able to, to assist. And uh, the good thing is, is that if, you know, even if a vegan business is, is based out of the country, if they have, they operate in the U S there's, there's a chance we can help them. So actually one of my first clients uh, with vegan um, animal, animal professionals insurance was, it was a uh, personal concierge or consultant based in Germany that works with clients in the U S. So it was actually, she was, she was my first client. I, I got her policy that covers her worldwide. So um, it really doesn't matter what, you know, most cases the, the the industry or what what um the client does but uh, you know we we um we can really work with um almost anybody and you know one of our clients is one of the largest uh, animal rights organizations in the nation so it doesn't matter if you're yeah if you have uh, just starting up with nothing or if you're a nationwide company great and are your the majority of your clients would they either be american or can you provide insurance for people who may be based outside the us but are operating within the us so uh so so both so the majority of my clients are are based in the us but i do have uh, one startup i'm working uh, that i that i do insurance for they're actually based in australia but their operations are are primarily in the us and again one of my clients is uh, you know based in germany works at the us but um, yeah, it really it really doesn't matter. This, as long as they have some sort of United States exposure, then we can we can work with them. Got it. Got it. No, fantastic. That's great. Now I know this is obviously quite a new. Your you, your existing company has been going for for a while. It's a highly established um, company with the vegan uh, side or the vegan branch. Then that's relatively new. So tell us a little bit about how you're getting yourself out there and marketing um, to to that particular target market. Sure. So, uh, like uh, like I mentioned at the very beginning of our talk, we I, I'm kind of doing a soft launch right now just to kind of test the waters, and it's really just over social media and and personal connections and getting the word out, you know, on, on a person by person basis. And um, I've had a couple um, a couple of my clients that are really championing my cause and have been tremendous uh, influencers and and referral sources for me already. So I'm running several veg fests on the East Coast. Uh, which it, which has been fantastic. I'm, you know, trying to get uh, trying to get to be able to write all the, uh, you know, I'd like to write all the VegFest nationwide. I mean, that would be that would be fantastic. Um, and uh, I actually just um, a couple weeks ago got back from Expo West, uh, Natural Foods Expo West in Anaheim. Oh and, yes, uh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of interesting because I I'm not one to typically uh, prospect for clients, but I I you know feeling this strongly about what I do and and having this much of a cause, I'm like, well, I, I, you know, I need to get the word out to what, about what I do. And would, uh, I, I've met with a couple dozen vegan, um, uh, businesses at Expo West who are all very, very interested in what I had to say in, in my prop, in my, uh, my value proposition. So, um, yeah, we, we have, um, you know, quite, quite a few, uh, uh, possible clients coming from that. 
Fantastic. I think that's wonderful. I think it's, it's like you say, it's really important where we can to, you know, give business to to each other, like within that vegan community, um, you know, assuming obviously that, you know, the person is qualified and can absolutely do their stuff, um, you know, and there's an expert in their field. Uh, you know, it just makes so much sense, you know, to to work with each other. So I'm really delighted that you've you've started up this business, Stephen. Um, and, uh, you know, if you do need insurance and you're you're either in the US or you're operating in any way in the US, then obviously um, we uh, we want you to check out um, Stephen because it will help you with your insurance. So you've shared some fabulous stuff. I know I've learned some uh, some good little tips. I'm going to go and, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to go and check my policy about the cybersecurity. I think that's a really important one. I hope everyone oh, will. So um, that's fantastic. You've shared some wonderful um, information, um, Stephen, and really appreciate you coming on and sharing this on the show. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me, Katrina. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again. So that was Stephen Griswold of Vegan and Animal Professionals Insurance Agency. You can find out more at veganinsurance.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 65. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Car manufacturers are getting on board with the creation of vegan alternatives to leather. Fast Company ran a story recently on Vicky von Holzhausen, who started her career as a car designer at Audi and Mercedes-Benz before launching a range of eponymous handbags last year. As she searched for sustainable yet luxurious leather, she came to realise that no leather is the most sustainable. She went back to her car industry contacts and worked with a manufacturer to develop a polyurethane-based material, which she's calling Technic Leather, that looks and feels like leather without any of the toxins and waste, or of course, the cruelty. Von Holzhausen says she considers her company to be as much a tech business as a fashion label. Meanwhile, journalist Thomas Madstrack from popular car review site Autogafuel, which gets around 3 million views a month, issued a challenge to car makers to stop using animal skins for interiors and to switch to vegan-friendly materials. Madstrack said in a video doing the rounds on social media recently that CEOs of car manufacturers need to think about the cruelty involved in leather. He also called them out on their hypocrisy regarding sustainability in an interview with Plant-Based News. He said, if you think about sustainability, an electric car with leather seats doesn't make sense. That would be like ordering alcohol-free beer and a liquor. Exactly. (laughs) It's great to see influencers such as this taking a stand and ensuring these issues get to a wide audience and putting pressure on industries to make positive change. UK cafe chain Pret-a-Manger opened a second veggie pret this week. You may recall, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, that I reported the company opened a store selling all vegetarian and vegan items in Soho in central London last year, initially as a temporary pop-up, but made it permanent after it proved so popular. After requests for more veggie pretz, the company announced a second location in Shoreditch, East London, which opened this week. And that's April 2017, if you're listening in the future. Vegan items were the top sellers at the Soho branch and the Pret chefs have been hard at work creating 20 new recipes for the Shoreditch menu, including a vegan macaroni cheese, which has taken the team the best part of a year to perfect, and a vegan chocolate brownie. Yum! It's great to see this chain expand its veggie prets. I'm very partial to vegan mac and cheese, so I may well check this out when I'm over in London later this year. And still on the subject of London, bookings have opened for stallholders, or that's tables or booths if you're outside the UK, for VegFest UK Trade, the UK's first ever vegan trade show, which takes place on Friday the 20th of October at Olympia. As I've mentioned in a previous episode of this podcast, I'm thrilled to be hosting the Business Support Room. Along with the organisers, I've been busy putting together a fantastic lineup of guest speakers and panellists who will be sharing their expertise to help vegan business owners succeed. 
These include Craig Tannock, longtime owner of five vegan cafe bars in Glasgow, Mike Hill from One Planet Pizza, content creator Damien Clarkson of Vivolution, Robbie Lockie of Plant Based News, digital marketer Lucy Knight, Jennifer Pardo of Zest Plant Based Consulting, publicist Karen Ridges, vegan journalist Maria Chirando, the editor of Vegan Life, and more. The trade show, which takes place the day before the two-day VegFest UK Consumer Show at the same venue, also features a vegan celebrity zone, new products showcase, health clinic, body care platform, plant-based chef corner and independent retailers lounge. Registration to this groundbreaking event will open shortly to trade professionals and media and you can find all the details at trade.vegfest.co.uk. Finally, sports retail giant Reebok has announced it will release a range of plant-based sustainable shoes made of cotton this year, reports Engadget. According to Reebok future head Bill McInnes, the company is keen to create a broad selection of bio footwear that can be composted after use. He said, we'll then use that compost as part of the soil to grow the materials for the next range of shoes. We want to take the entire cycle into account to go from dust to dust. The sole of the shoes will be made using DuPont's Sustera Propinidial, which originates from non-food source industrially grown corn, while the upper will be made of organic cotton. How cool is this? You know, with so much plastic going to landfill, including old shoes, it's time for companies to get serious about sustainability. So it's great to see Reebok embracing cruelty-free, environmentally friendly materials. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business, and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. 